0: This episode of the Coin World podcast is sponsored by California Rare Coins and James Cottle. At California Rare Coins, we specialize in early rare copper coins and other rare coins in the finest grades known. We recently sold the second finest known 1848 $2.50 Gold Eagle PR64 CAC coin the finest known being in the Smithsonian Museum. Contact California Rare Coins and James Cottle today and get a free, no-obligation appraisal and offer on your U.S. coin collections and rarities. Visit CaliforniaRareCoins.com or call James Cottle at 818-481-0569. That's CaliforniaRareCoins.com, 818-481-0569. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Coin World Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. We have an exciting show for you lined up this week, as usual. We're going to do a lot of discussion about the hobby and its place in American life. We're going to uh, look back in some history, and it's really timed well with the July 4th Independence Day. But first, I think you need to remind our listeners something.
2: I absolutely do. This podcast is one of our sort of forays into new media, and for it to be successful, we need as much listener engagement and participation as possible. So if you've been enjoying these podcasts, if you enjoy this podcast, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and keep listening every week. And always feel free to reach out with your questions or comments to either Jeff Stark or I. Our contact information can be found on the podcast page.
1: Absolutely. So let's look appropriately back in time for this week in history to July 4th, 1926. Now, July 4th, Nations Independence Day, that's happening this week. Back then, almost 100 years ago, we're we're looking on 93 years ago, what happened that day? Well, it was the ceremonial first striking of the Declaration of Independence sesquicentennial. Say that three times fast. Commemorative <laughs> coins. So that ceremony was held, I believe, in Philadelphia. The coins were issued to help raise money for uh, exhibition in Philadelphia. So there was a half dollar that was in silver, and there was a, a gold. Uh, was it five dollar piece? Or, yes. Yeah.
2: So yeah, it was gold five. The uh, gold half eagle. The
1: the the, the silver shows. And, and maybe the gold as well. The George Washington and Silent Cal Coolidge. The you know the story about Silent Cal,
2: right? I'm assuming he didn't talk very much.
1: Well, yes, and and it is apparently apocryphal. That means it's probably just legend, not true. But there's, you know, there. Oh,
2: great word, apocryphal.
1: We we that sounds like apocalypse. And uh, <laughs> anyway, so the the story goes that somebody was at a dinner party with the then president or later president, rather, before he was president. And they said to Mr. Coolidge, I have bet somebody that I can get you to say more than two words. And his response was, you lose. (laughs) So in any event, 1926, Coolidge was still alive. He was no longer in the presidency, correct?
2: Um, or was he? I think he was nineteen. Because in Hoover 24. and so maybe it was Hoover was nineteen twenty nine eight. Well, yeah. because well, he, he was yeah, elected 19... in twenty eight. Yeah, but twenty. So and I believe in any Coolidge. Event... I think Coolidge was twenty two to twenty eight. Yeah, er, no. Yeah, would have been 20 Harding. To 28? Harding. No, Harding was twenty to twenty four. Coolidge, Coolidge was twenty four yeah. to twenty eight. So he was. The, That's what it was. He
1: was the sitting president and. Not only was that sitting president, but he, the fact that he was living, that Ooh, was that unusual. was very much uh, a surprise to have somebody who was currently living to appear on American Coinage. It has not happened often, but that is one of the times that it has happened, and that was for the nation's sesquicentennial, 150th anniversary, that is. And so that's from our pages from history, This Week in History, appropriate with the Independence Day holiday just staring down at us later this week.
2: All right. Now, I think, as usual, you have a question for me, Jeff.
1: I do. Another question. And mm. so let's – we're, we're going to stay in the U.S. realm. This time the question
2: – I think this whole episode we're doing U.S. stuff actually.
1: Yeah, we, well, we're celebrating appropriate, America. Yeah,
2: appropriate for the Fourth of July. Hashtag so, America.
1: Hashtag America. 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 Yeah, America. So uh, this is a, a different kind of question. It's a novice question, but mm. it's pretty hard.
2: So I might get ooh, oh, I oh pretty hard. I might not get it.
1: So you know, the U.S. Mint strikes a lot of coins every year, but it wasn't that wasn't always the case. You know, back in the early days, the production figures were fairly low. Certainly, when viewed through the lens of modern mintage figures, what year did the mint produce one billion with a B Oof.
2: billion cent coins? One cent coin. That is quite a benchmark. I'll have to I'll have to think so, on that. Not million, but billion. not a million, but billion. I will have to think on that. And what year
1: was that what that year? the U.S. mint finally struck more than one billion one cent coins? No. You're going to think about it. The listeners are going to think about it and come up with their own conclusions. No Googling. No No Googling. Googling. Yeah. And I don't know if Google will help on this because that's pretty obscure. Well, you could find mintage figures though.
2: That'd be easier. That'd be
1: a lot of work to dig through and figure out. Yeah. And you only
2: have like, you know, 20 or so minutes to do it. If that.
1: So, and you're going to be glued to the headphones listening. Yeah, exactly. Or your car radio or whatever.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, your eyes glued to the television. Yeah, I guess your ears would be glued to the, to the yes, podcast. Yes. That's funny. So
1: so keep keep that in mind. Think about it. We're going to mention that a little bit later. So I was talking about one cent coins. Now it's your turn to mm, talk about one cent coins. Absolutely.
2: Coin. So for our series of the week, we're going to be talking about a series that's fairly well known to collectors of early American copper or you know US coins more broadly. But we're going to be talking about the last of the large cents. Now, for those listeners who don't have a huge background in numismatics, previously to 1858, well, technically 1856, but that's a whole other can of worms, the U.S. one-cent coin, the penny as it is colloquially referred to, even though penny actually denotes a British denomination that is 1 out of 240 instead of 1 out of 100. So the term penny actually refers to pre-decimal English coin,
1: pre-decimal, but they also use it today.
2: Yeah, in the decimal. Yes, process, they continue so. to use it, but yes. it it originates. The term penny Absolutely. originates from a non-decimal system, so technically it's inaccurate to call a cent a penny in a U.S. context. But be that as it may, the one-cent coin that circulated was not the size that we're accustomed to today. The little, you know, the little copper and zinc coin with Abraham Lincoln's portrait on it. They actually used to be quite a bit larger and quite a bit thicker. They used to be almost the size of a contemporary half dollar. A little bit smaller, but not significantly smaller. And kind of, kind of like a Sacagawea dollar, I think. About, yeah, right? a, a Sacagawea dollar, maybe a tiny bit bigger. Tiny than bit bigger than a Sacagawea dollar. Tiny bit smaller than a contemporary half dollar. And these were minted between 1793, the very first circulating coins ever struck. You know the one cent was among them. the The chain cent, a very famous design that we might cover in a future edition of this series, and it circulated until 1857, when Congress judged that the cent was now much too large relative to its face value. A conversation that we are having a parallel version of today. Now, the final large cent is what's called the braided hair variety. Large cents are categorized based on the style of the portrait of Liberty that appears on the obverse. Liberty is always a woman. And they're categorized typically by describing their hair. Though there's one that's called a matron head scent, which I think is a little sexist, but it was also the 1820s and 30s. So maybe they weren't quite as uh, up-to-date as – not quite as woke, exactly. But – so braided hair refers to the fact that Liberty's hair is in a braid, whereas in the previous coronet head design, the hair was wrapped up in a style that I believe is referred to as a coronet. So – the braided hair design was introduced in 1839 as the previous coronet head was being phased out, and it was designed by Christian Gobrecht, a name that's probably very familiar to anyone who is interested in seated Liberty coinage. Christian Gobrecht was an engraver and a designer at the Mint of German origin, I believe, Correct. and yeah, ja. yeah, ja, yeah, ja Gern, and he is re- he was responsible in. 1837 and before he started the design before 1837. In fact, the famous Gobrecht dollar reflected the seated liberty motif. But he also designed America's silver subsidiary coinage. Subsidiary coinage will be a term that we will cover in a future term of the week segment. So subsidiary coinage very quickly refers to the denominations lower than a dollar. So half dollar, quarter, dime, half dime, Send. Those are what are called subsidiary coins. And
1: sometimes people call them fractional yeah. money. Fractional is another they're term. Less than a whole dollar. Yes. So.
2: Though, if you use that referring to a coin, then you could get confused with the less than $1 denominated U.S. currency, which referred to as fractional currency, but. Be that as it may, Christian Goebrecht was responsible for also designing half dime, dime, quarter dollar, and half dollar with the seated liberty motif that would circulate from 1837, that would be on those denominations from 1837 to 1891. His braided hair scent proved not quite as long lived as his other designs. Introduced in 1839, the braided hair scent is a fairly simple design that features a simple motif of liberty on the obverse and one cent within a wreath on the reverse. Now, they were introduced in 1839, and shortly before the Civil War in 1857, they were discontinued because Congress realized that the amount of copper and the weight of the coin not only made it a little bit unwieldy to carry around, but with metal prices fluctuating and inflation and war fears eating into the Nazi's economic prospects, they decided that maintaining the cent at at that size and weight was no longer financially expedient, and it was phased out in 1857.
1: Also coming at that time were, were the laws that swept aside certain legal tender status for world coins that were in yes. circulation. So 1857 is a very important year in U.S. numismatic history. A
2: very important year. You,
1: you've thrown a lot of detail at us, a lot of information. Indeed. We've talked about every week we have a term of the week, and you're going to do this. Yep. So far, we focused on things that or appear on coins, let's talk about how coins are made today yes. for our Term of the Week.
2: So, in previous versions of Term of the Week, I know that you have probably heard me talk about dyes. Now, when people think about creating coins, they generally, they might picture something like a die. And what dies are, they are large metal, Though they can be made out of other things, they're typically metal, because that's and a very hard metal at that. So, that have the design of the coin that you want imprinted onto your small discs called planchets. So a planchet is fed into the mint process, and then the two dies, one for the obverse and one for the reverse, terms you'd be familiar with from previous editions of this segment, the two dies are then rammed together with quite a bit of force, or screwed together in earlier uh, minting processes, which we will also be talking about in future episodes. And then once they're hit together, the design is imprinted on the coin, and then is generally sent out, or it's struck multiple times if it's a proof coin. But generally, that's the basic process. You put a planchet into the dies, and you slam them together. So the design is in
1: the reverse so that when it's imprinted, it appears as a positive.
2: Yeah, it's like a mirror. Like, you know, you have to – the design is produced on the die backwards, but it appears forward, so to speak. When it's struck. On the final coin. So the term is die, which refers to the metal – essentially blocks that are imprinted with the coin's design – but there are two distinct terms to refer to each of the two dies used in the minting process. Seeing as they can't exactly just slam them together willy-nilly, there is usually one die that is static. It's you know usually on the floor, the lower part of whatever machinery is involved. And then the upper die is the one that moves. The upper die is slammed down into the lower die. So the upper die is dynamic, where the lower die is static. Now, the upper die is referred to as the hammer die, because... What do you do with a hammer? You bring it down. You bring Exactly. You slam it down. So you slam the top die into the bottom die, the anvil die. Now, the term anvil evokes, of course, blacksmithing and forges, where the anvil, or it represents something that you drop on Wily e. Coyote. Um, the anvil. Yes.
1: <laughs> Gotta the, get the Wily e. Coyote. Yeah, yeah.
2: If I'm not referencing Roadrunner, what am I doing here? Um, the anvil is a large metal, essentially a block, but it usually has sort of a. A pointed or... shape to it. Yeah, little flanges on it. Google anvil and you'll see what I mean. And blacksmiths traditionally would use that to stabilize whatever it is that they were creating. If you were creating a sword, you would put it onto the anvil and then hit it with your hammer or whatever else you're using to get it into the shape you want. So the language associated with dyes is very reminiscent of sort of the metallurgical tradition out of which coin striking rose. So your term this week is die. And there's the hammer die, and the anvil die.
1: And to clarify, these uses that terminology dates back to a different era, because now many presses have dies that are striking side to side. So there's, yeah. there's you know, there are still some presses that get do up and down strokes but side to side is done uh, common especially for circulating coins and you know that that's 700 coins a minute so you can uh, imagine how much you know speed is is used in when striking these dies and y- you can imagine why uh, how errors could possibly result given the rapidity of the process so now that we've Died and gone to mint heaven. <laughs> Is it time to... Um, we're, we're talking about striking we're talking coins? About striking
2: Now, Jeff, we need to answer the question as to when the mint passed a very significant striking benchmark.
1: Absolutely. So the question for Chris, mm. but really for you, what year was the first year that the U.S. Mint struck a billion or more one-cent coins? Now they, they do, you know, quite a large number. There's... Hundreds of
2: billions, probably by now, right?
1: Uh, well they, uh, cumulatively, yeah. I mean, there's the number of one cent coins with, with Lincoln on them is just oh, trillions enormous and
2: trillions at this point.
1: So think about this. What is there any possible idea I, for you? Here's what I'm going to do for one billion. Here's what I'm
2: going to do. I'm going to walk the listeners through my process, and okay. we're going to narrow it down. So the mint's production capacity. You first need to start thinking about when they passed the million benchmark. And that was sometime probably probably in the 1860s is when they were able to pass a million. And so it's obviously after that. So I would imagine that the mint's ability to acquire copper and strike it quickly and efficiently would have to be more recently than the 19th century. Sometime in the 20th century for sure. And mintages of some of the later Indian head cents and the early Lincoln cents are actually quite low. There are, you know, a few dates in the early Lincoln cent, nineteen oh nine SVDB comes to mind that are quite rare. So
1: Yeah, fewer than a million. I would million,
2: imagine so. it would have to be sometime probably in the nineteen forties or the nineteen fifties. And you think
1: about where the population was. Exactly. At the, time. the the
2: demand was obviously increasing. There was you know the penny still had some utility in circulation uh, where it really doesn't now, so I am going to go with a round answer and I'm going to guess nineteen fifty
1: that is pretty good
2: pretty good let's go What's back the... a little bit further okay. think
1: think about the hard times of the Great Depression mm. okay yep and the economic scarcity, the lack of money and then the a uh, world War II machinery started mm, ramping yep. up,
2: oh yeah, big time
1: certainly after this date, but in nineteen forty 1940, in nineteen forty one december seventh nineteen forty one day that shall live in infamy, then yep. you saw the the mint going Og the,
2: wild almost
1: the the mint was for all intents and purposes part of the war effort as they struck. Lots of coinage, both for the booming American economy as people were Going serving back in work. factories yep. and, you know, women were were into factories, Rosie Riveter, all that. So the answer lies right in there, 1941.
2: Ah, 41. All right. That, that makes sense in the context of the sort of – U.S. industrial boom. And and post-depression. Post-depression.
1: Economy. All right. And and so
2: we passed, the men passed the one billion cent mark in 1941. Listeners, that can be your fun cocktail party fact for absolutely Appropriately
1: for July 4th, I'm thinking of, oh, say, can you see? Mm -hmm. And now Chris is going to tell us
2: something that you should see. You've got to see this. Okay. So for this week's, you've got to see this segment. I happened upon something very, very interesting while I was browsing through Instagram or Insta, as my peers refer to it. Have you checked your Insta? Go like my Insta. That is. I like uh...
1: Insta oatmeal.
2: <laughs> exactly. That'd be a great. I think if there's a there's like an instant food company, they do really well on Insta. Like Instas of instant oatmeal. Like I've, yeah. that'd be great. Anyway, so this post today comes from Edelman's Coins that's an account on instagram edelman's coins e-d-e-l-m-a-n-s-c-o-i-n-s all lowercase all one word edelman's coins which my friends from new england will also love because of julian edelman who is a receiver for was or is i don't know i think he's still playing for us a receiver for the patriots so patriots patriots god bless america Uh, july 4th god bless tom brady um yeah. Nah.
1: Nah. <laughs> I don't I don't think our listeners appreciate that.
2: No well, some of them do. Maybe um, a few. <laughs> the, the, the Patriots are the best football team in the nation. All anyway,
1: say those with an inflated sense of self.
2: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what do we have to see? That's actually great. Okay. So, Edelman's coins not owned by Julian Edelman, I don't think put out an Instagram post of a certified pattern of a braided hair large scent, which is actually appropriate. We just talked about braided hair large scent, so you guys know a little bit of the history. Now, this is a pattern that was struck, submitted in 1854. Now, again, pattern is another term that we're going to cover in a future Term of the Week segment, but to give you a very Almost insultingly brief overview, a pattern coin is basically a test coin that is proposed and minted to test new designs and to see how they look when they're actually physically produced. Pattern coins are very rare, and they usually sell for quite a bit more than their regular issued circulating counterparts. So this is a pattern of an 18 – that was proposed in 1854 of a braided hair large cent. And it really doesn't fundamentally change the depiction of Liberty at all, but what it does do is it removes the 13 stars from the reverse. So it's just Liberty's braided head sitting in an empty field. You remember we talked about fields in a previous episode's Term of the Week. Just sitting plain in the fields is just Liberty's head and the date, 1854. And... It's really quite – for people who are at all familiar with large Sense, it's really quite a striking image to see Liberty's head without stars. It really makes the coin feel a little bit empty because, you know, collectors of U.S. coins and even modern U.S. coins, the ones that circulate, almost always have some kind of text or stars or something circling the central motif on the obverse and reverse. But in this case, it's just plain. So we'll be putting a link to that. In the podcast description so you can look at it for yourself. And it's really quite an interesting piece.
1: I would think, having seen this, that its austerity of design helps elevate it mm, to, to a you know such a, a different piece of artwork absolutely. on coinage.
0: And I, I've
2: always thought that the, the rings of stars and things can, if done wrong, if done incorrectly or if not executed well, can lend the coins a rather cluttered appearance. So I actually kind of like it. It was certified Proof 62. It was certified uh, by NGC uh, Proof 62. And it's really a wonderful piece, and there will be a link to it in the show description. So please enjoy that. With Independence Day almost upon us, we thought we would take a few minutes to reflect on what it means for us to be American coin collectors. And we would also love to hear what it means for you to be an American coin collector. So again, feel free to reach out to us. But, you know, we're reflecting on almost our nation's birthday, you know, it's worth thinking about why we collect American coins, if we do, what attracts us to them, what distinguishes them, and what are some sort of historical and thematic issues that they bring up. So, Jeff, what U.S. coins or tokens or medals or other numismatic, exonemic or other items do you collect and and why? Like, what are they?
1: So I'm from St. Louis area. And so I always look for St. Louis and Missouri-related tokens and metals, less so paper money just because it's um, it's easier to find things in my price range with the exonumia area. But these pieces help me connect to a regional history, a state history, folks that graced the show me state stage, as it were, you know, whether it's Charles Lindbergh's flying in the spirit of St. Louis, whether it's Harry Truman, the only Missourian who has become American president, other distinguished luminaries that call Missouri home, Walt Disney. There's so many, so many others back in history. I can't look at a Lewis and Clark expedition related piece without thinking of it's the core of discoveries time in St. Louis and, yeah, and, and the, the Arch and, and all that and the Louisiana Purchase and so there there are plenty of touchstones for me that help celebrate the area from which I come from which I hail and its role in American history you know St. Louis is the gateway to the West right we have a giant arch because of that yep. and that arch can be found on uh, medals that were issued by the uh, Jefferson National Expansion Memorial in the 60s when it opened in bronze and silver. There's the designer of the arch, Eero Saarinen, was from Finland, and Finland put the arch on a coin to mark Saarinen's birth centennial in 2010, 2010. So that's for me, you know, a way to collect items from a specific place that celebrate my Americanism and American history. That doesn't mean, I don't turn my eye to, you know, the Indian Head Five Cent and some of these other classic American designs that that speak to eras that are long bygone, you know you think about the Native American depiction on that coin, the bison, mm. which was hunted almost to extinction, brought back in more recent years that tells the story of the conquest of the West, westward expansion, um, the manifest destiny sort of driving motivating force. Uh, you have some great commemorative coin designs that sort of link to that as well the uh, the California half dollar is a beautiful piece and, you know, the gold miner there and the there's a, one of the bridge coins from yep. California with the bear and you know, the California, there's just, there's so many aspects of American history to celebrate through coinage.
2: What about you, Chris? I, all very true. My interest in collecting United States coins began in the way a lot of people's do with the 50 state quarter program, which, you know, the Arch of St. Louis is I don't particularly love the Missouri Quarters design. No, I, I think it's cluttered and kind of
1: it's it's t- it looks it's like broccoli on the uh, banks of the river. <laughs> it, it's also
2: it's also chronologically nonsensical. Lewis Correct. and Clark are like are they're floating down the river with rowing, the arch in the background. Yeah, they're rowing towards the arch, <laughs> so it's not 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 a great design. But my interest began with uh, a typeset. I wanted to create you know a simple collection of each design of of all the different denominations. And I've I've completed it now at least. Um, Minus all of the gold. I have everything but gold and flowing hair dollars. Uh, I have... And, you know, some of the specimens aren't amazingly nice. My trade dollar that I have is covered in chop marks, but I love it anyway. And as I kind of matured into coin collecting interests and as my interest – You're mature? <laughs> not in the slightest. But my interests matured. OK. Uh, I, sh- I-, I sure didn't. But my inter- – I mean I bought a buffalo nickel <laughs> that had the word ass just stamped onto it because I was like, you know what? Why not? That's it's fun. It's, it's, it's funny. funny. Um, and so, you know, I, I, you, your interests can mature but but, you know, you never should. We never should mature but we can change what we want to collect. My interest in U.S. collecting has shifted in recent years to the coins and tokens of U.S. empire. And in the same way that there's a lot of great things to celebrate, both visually and thematically, about American history that you mentioned, Jeff, something that's always captivated me are the myriad ways in which we have failed to live up to our creed. Because I think that as Americans, we all have a relatively distinct set of values, and a lot of them are very good ones. And... And yet being human as we are and and inheriting many of the sins of our fathers in some ways, our nation has failed to live up to its stated values many, many times as any nation does. It's not uniquely American, but America is so large and so powerful that when it fails, its failures often ripple in ways that a lot of us are unaware of or – you know, might not understand or or certainly intend, but it happens nonetheless. So I've become very interested in the coins of U.S. empire, specifically uh, the U.S. and the Philippines, because I find, first of all, the story of a coin that was minted in Denver or San Francisco and then shipped over to the Philippines and then used, and then somehow the coin found its way back, whether in the pocket of a service person or a tourist, whoever it is that happened to bring it back or for whatever reason, I find the story of that coin very interesting. You know, you see the mint mark from the United States, but that's a coin that circulated in another country. I find that absolutely fascinating. And the Manila mint, the only mint to not be on U.S. soil, is a fascinating piece of history in and of itself because we essentially took that mint over from the Spanish. We fought to liberate, quote-unquote, the Philippines in 1898, and instead of, you know, providing them the tools to create their own society and their own government and be independent – we moved in and we took over the Manila Mint. And so that the U.S. Mint was operating a mint on foreign shores... Is 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 in and of itself very interesting,
1: but it also parallels what the British did when you think about you know some of the colonial mints, 1908 in Canada and Ottawa, and yep. you know there were mints in Perth and Sydney, uh, Australia,
2: Bombay, Calcutta, Bombay, absolutely South, South Africa. Africa,
1: yeah. So so this is yeah no it's it's against so, that larger landscape and it it, it makes and, and sense. And interesting it fits in.
2: what's interesting is that and you're absolutely right and and we in so many ways did not innovate much from our other colonial powers i mean we ourselves were a colony we achieved independence and other places did not have that and so baked into our stated identity is that we are against the imperial project we are against empire we want to promote the freedom of people anywhere in our own country and and with increasing amounts of force elsewhere. And what strikes me about that is that there's a tension embedded in those coins because the United States claims to be a post-empire, and yet we acquired imperial territory and started minting their coins.
1: For 40 years, roughly, 45 years. Yeah, for for
2: almost half a century. And that tension is, to me, not only fascinating from sort of a, a cognitive or psychological perspective, but it's also very interesting in terms of the material history because seeing US symbolism or US symbols and US iconography mixed with designs evoking the Philippines on those coins is very interesting and i've and building off of that theme i've also become very interested in US trade coinage you know the trade dollar specifically and seeing how it's circulated in china my as i mentioned earlier my trade dollar has chop marks and i find that fascinating Which, again which, to, to explain, yes, for our listeners, a <laughs> chop mark. <laughs> yes, that's right. This this should be explained.
1: Chop marks are the merchant uh, punches that were put on the coins to attest that they were of good silver. In short, we'll talk about it. in Yeah, full we, later. We, it,
2: they were used in in trade mostly to to China. It was and, a
1: way to vet the coin, essentially. Exactly.
2: Yeah, and and they were traded extensively in China and East Asia, other parts of East Asia, and having a coin minted by the United States. That went overseas, yeah. That that went overseas was handled by a bunch of merchants. Like there are a number of has evidence job marks. of this use, physical evidence of its utility and its use. I and and again, that is more a, a function of economic imperialism because China was forced open by the British in the 1840s for trade, which that in and of itself is a fascinating section of history that is very worth discussing. That has had massive impact on China's modern history and China's modern development. So my interest in U.S. coins is both in enjoying and understanding some of the beautiful designs that are evocative of major sort of cultural touchstones, figures, and places in America and appreciating that, but also understanding on the flip side of that, that however wonderful those images and ideals are, we need to be constantly reflecting on how we can better adhere to our creed and how we can better advance the freedom and the rights of of people and and to try to strive for a more just society and more just conduct
1: and on that note i want to ask listeners to ponder what it means for themselves share that with us through the contact details at the show page
0: this episode of the coin world podcast is sponsored by california rare coins and james coddle At California Rare Coins, we specialize in early rare copper coins and other rare coins in the finest grades known. Our large and loyal customer base has come to depend on us for quality, selection, and customer service beyond their expectation. If you are looking for rare coins and precious metal investments, California Rare Coins and James Cottle are here to help. Contact California Rare Coins and James Cottle today and get a free, no-obligation appraisal and offer on your U.S. coin collections and rarities. Visit CaliforniaRareCoins.com or call James Cottle at 818-481-0569. That's CaliforniaRareCoins.com, 818-481-0569.
1: And now, buckle up, prepare yourself for... Chris and I's discussion with Charles Morgan of CoinWeek.com.
2: A fellow numismatic publisher. So enjoy the interview. We are joined by Charles Morgan, the editor of CoinWeek.com and host of the CoinWeek podcast. Thank you so much for coming on, Charles.
3: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me.
2: First and foremost, we were going to ask you a question that I think is on the minds of a lot of people in media more broadly and especially in numismatic media What challenges has the digital age and the digital format, since you guys are online only, presented to your sort of area of the numismatic publishing industry? And what challenges do you see it posing to numismatic journalism and publishing more broadly?
3: Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. And, you know, I appreciate having the opportunity to talk about it. I think broadly speaking, like, I grew up in the nineteen. 80s and 90s. And uh, when you look back at the way the hobby media presented itself back then, you had pretty strong publications. This was the Margot Russell period of Coin World. This was the Bill uh, the Hyatt, I guess, of Numismatic News. The Numismatist was fantastic during this period. And it just seemed like the way the hobby presented itself was mature and it had a real deep bullpen of content that was being published. Uh, in, in these different spaces and the way coin collecting presented itself was as a mature hobby, sort of fairly sophisticated uh, hobby. And, uh, the interesting thing is when I became a professional, I like consume a lot of media. I consume a lot of vintage media. I collect Newman's Mac scrapbook magazine and Numismatists and Coin World and 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 off-brand things that, that came on on board but failed, like the Whitman New Back Journal and other sort of house publications. And when the coin collecting boom took off, I think for the mainstream, like in the '60s, which is when a lot of the for-profit magazines came out, we were facing a client that really they weren't sophisticated numismatists. They weren't your you know your traditional rich guys who are members of major clubs. They were sort of drawn from the wide swath of the American public. And so the professional magazines did the job of educating the public about coins in a way that, you know, the major hobby publications before hadn't. And I loved it. I love reading about, like, sort of a grassroots-based, collector-based content that was being just generated for decades. And I think what's happened in the last maybe 15 or 20 years since the internet's come on board as a major factor of our industry is that perhaps the traditional media may be slow to really grasp that what differentiates the internet uh, audience from somebody who's going to buy a physical copy of a product is that the internet really is driven by personalities and it's, it's not as slick and published uh, as, a, as, a, as something we would publish. When we started working on Coin Week, where I started working on Coin Week, um, it was sort of—it was really a blog, and the content we were publishing was—you know—I I, I think it straddled the line between amateur and professional. And so, what I try to do is bring professional values to it, and sort of uh, give it some strength and clarity, but I also understood when I looked at the numbers and the things people read and the types of videos people watched, that people wanted also to have a personal relationship with the creators of the content. So I think that really, the challenge to all this, of course, is paying for it. Um, I think uh, everybody has struggled to figure out a way to pay for the types of content that Really, an industry and a hobby like ours needs to thrive and grow, and so I think in the long run, the only way we're really going to get beyond where we're at now is maybe with a different model than uh, just giving constantly for free or charging subscriptions. I, I don't really know what it is, but that ultimately is the challenge I think the coin hobby faces from collectors being informed about what's going on. I think on the other side, where you have the industry selling and promoting products, I don't think there's any shortage of money on their part to market their products. It's just they don't, they don't necessarily need to come to us or come to you or any other publication to do it. They have, you know, through Google and other means, a direct, uh, you know, a direct entry point into somebody's browser
1: given this landscape if i may jump in it seems to me the question begs is it necessary to have some of that beginner type information is there still a place for it and what's the best venue for that than to reach folks. Maybe, you know, I've always called this a big tent hobby. and, And it's as you were about to say grassroots, I was thinking that as well. This is sort of a base of a pyramid was where we used to be as a hobby. So many folks on the bottom supporting the higher end. Now it seems that pyramid is inverted.
3: Again, like I brought up Margot earlier. When you go back to a certain period in the hobby, like the people like Margot and Cliff Mishler and, and people like this, they were like major ambassadors for coin collecting. If the Mint was going to strike a coin, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't dare do it <laughs> without having these people there. Um, and we've gone away from that. So I think in, in some respects, one of the weaknesses for publications – And I think for the hobby overall is that it's become decentralized to the point where the Mint doesn't necessarily know that they should have us there when they strike the Lions Club dollar. We sort of have to tell them, hey, we we can come, let us know when. And uh, now the Mint, for instance, has done a little bit better job. They've had this symposium the last couple of years. But I don't think that the way information is disseminated to people has been organized. And I think everybody's trying to do their own thing. And the customer, the the collector, is sort of left in the lurch. I get calls all the time. I don't know. You guys probably have a better system than I do. I I shouldn't take all the calls. But I get calls from people, collectors, and uh, they have, you know, your basic questions. I had a guy yesterday talk my ear off for about an hour about how he's trying to invest in coins. And what is he buying? He's buying, you know, modern... Canadian proof 70 coins, signed labels, novelty labels, stuff like that, and uh, paying paying a handsome premium for this product. And I tried to tell him, I said, listen, nobody who's selling you these products is doing you a disservice. I mean the, you're buying it at the retail price and, and these are accurately graded for, you know and these are collectible products and they are commodity I mean not commodities, but they are repackages of something a mint would sell you know with a premium. And I said, but if you're going into this thinking you're investing in something that, you know, in the long term is going to be, you know, hugely profitable for you, then you don't, you haven't really done a sufficient amount of research into this. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, personally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise anybody to just go into a hobby thinking they're going to outsmart the, the market makers and the, 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 the sophisticated collectors. But, but this gentleman, you know, he didn't have, he didn't have the tools accessible enough for him, uh, to make, to make the right call. And the first time he started to have a doubt, he like Googled and found me. <laughs> you know, he's lucky he got me. But at the same time, I don't like having these conversations with people where I feel at the end of the day, maybe I just turned somebody off to coin collecting when I would rather have the conversation with them at the beginning that coin collecting is like a cool, fun hobby and coins are cool and fun and beautiful. And as long as you're into it for that, then you're going to be okay. But the minute you like want to turn, you know, a Tuvalu shark coin into your kids' uh, college fund, you're, you're you're making a mistake. You're you're misjudging the situation.
2: Does this shift in emphasis, in some sense, from collectors as hobbyists and people who might be interested in it for the history, and I'm sure some of them do still exist, but does this shift in in the minds of at least some in the public, towards a more investment-oriented mindset, does that make writing about coins more difficult because people seem really interested in just the monetary value instead of the historical narrative into which these coins fit? And does that change how you're inclined to report on these sort of things?
3: So you use the word report, and again, reporting is difficult too, and when you're in a trade publication, it's difficult to uh, cover. We can't cover numismatics and in the, in the industry like maybe the Washington Post would cover the government because the, the minute you sit there and, you know, every slight rumor and you go you go research and dig it up and find out, oh, well, that, that deal between these two people didn't go well, and you start reporting on stuff like that, you, you really get yourself in a position where nobody wants to talk to you ever again. So, I use the sort of the greater good theory, which is when things in the industry which are negative really are going to affect people, then we will report on it no matter what the repercussions for us as a business is. If it's a minor situation where somebody's selling a coin, for instance, I'm uh, maybe marketing a coin and it's uh, overpriced and people can get it somewhere else, I mean, I, I just I just don't think that, you know, we can go there and protect everybody from paying too much or something. At the same time, um, you know, if you have a coin that's like a modern coin that sells for a lot of money and uh, at an auction and then all of a sudden the population inflates by 200, 300 percent because obviously it would, people would try to make, make those coins. Then, yeah, we report on that and we try to, like, give people at least a fighting chance to make the right decision about what they're doing. But... You know, I don't know in the long term if a coin that, you know, keeps up with inflation after 20 years but doesn't improve on that position is a good investment or a bad investment. And many coin dealers try to get people not to think about coins as investments. And and I think that, you know, when you get back down to it, you know, these things are fun and interesting. And uh, sometimes they go up in value, uh, sometimes tremendously. But... If for every coin that goes up in value, that just means the longer you wait to buy it, the more expensive it is for you to buy it. How
2: can numismatic publications, whether it's online, CoinWeek, whether it's CoinWorld, whatever the case may be, how can we as numismatic writers and reporters help to sort of reconceptualize the value that people see in coins? So instead of someone just finding what they can afford, the, the modern products, or the people that are spending money on really high-dollar pieces how do we show people that there are not only affordable, really interesting pieces available, but how can we also get people to see that there's more to value than just a dollar and cents figure, that there are sort of intangible or, you know, non-intrinsic forms of value that can inform how people collect?
3: The coins are cultural things, right? And I would add metals and tokens and, and paper money. I mean, there's this big there's a big thing going on now about whether or not it was the right call for the treasury to reverse course on Lou's decision to put Harriet Tubman on the note and on the $20 uh, federal reserve note, and then change some, some themes on the, uh, 10 and the five. I understand that there are people on both sides of that issue. And I think there are well-intentioned people who want to keep it the same and well-intentioned people think it should change. That's like a cultural moment. And it may make us uncomfortable to sit there and, and really talk about it because uh, we don't want to alienate people. But at the same time, that telltale point that coins and paper money and numismatics is actually relevant to everyday life. And so I think that really when it boils down to it, these things are everywhere. We launched a comic book website recently in the last couple of months. Not that we're not doing Coin Week full-time. We just decided, you know, we do that too. And there are coins and pictures of coins all over the place in comic books. I grew up playing video games. There's coins and things about numismatics and video games. So I think really where we miss the boat is like, if we get in this idea that our entire hobby is based on these objects and uh, what the mintages are and, you know, whether or not something's going up or down in value, we miss the bigger picture, which is these things touch everybody. Now, there's only a certain type of person that's going to want to collect them, you know. It takes a little bit of trust, I think, to pay $1,000 for a 1909 svdb cent if you don't know the deal because it says one cent on it, <laughs> you know. It's, it's just a, it takes a, a little bit of uh, belief. The fact of the matter is all around people are numismatic things, themes, um, images. It's, it's kind of the way we think about ourselves really is through money and the power of it. You know, Hubert uh, and I, uh, my, my co-writer, sometimes co-writer, we spent two years working on Book for Whitman, uh, which is going to be published, I guess, later in the year, The 100 Greatest Modern World Coins. And I didn't want to do what everyone else had done, which is just focus on rarity and auction prices and mintages. I, I kind of wanted to look at coins as like what they meant to the time and what was going on and why they're rare. Not because they only made three or four, but maybe because people hated the king, <laughs> and he was like almost on the, out the door, or um maybe there was a war going on, or maybe there's some other thing, and so we really just wanted to focus on people and how these things connect to that period and and I think really you know the most popular videos about coins that you'll find on youtube they're not they're not videos that I made unfortunately um. Uh, probably won't be videos you guys make. Um, it's not because we can't make good videos about coins. It's just that the things that most people see are clickbaity and not necessarily honest or good for the hobby. Yeah, under your, your sofa cushion, a million-dollar penny. I mean, th- these are the kinds of things people click on. And so I think when we do our coverage, though, I think we need to see how can we make our topics exciting but without giving people, like, false hope that you know, every every time they open up their pocket, they're going to find something
1: that's really remarkable. Yeah, so how, how much of your reporting and how much of uh, our reporting, to a lesser extent, should, is informed by your collecting experience? Uh, you mentioned that you collect the numismatic publications from the past. I know you you have diverse numismatic interest in collecting, whether that's U.S. coins, whether it's world coins in the FAO series. Um, how can you translate your experience to something that's meaningful for a new collector or moderate level collector?
3: It's very difficult to do what Jeff does or what Chris does, what what I do. Usually when you see standard references and publications about coins that are very specific, they're by people who either have direct access to amazing resources of collections or or collectors. They're typically done by dealers, who have a, a lot of experience moving these products, like owning these products, selling these products. I don't make a million dollars a year or more. Uh, so I can't go out there and buy an $80,000 coin, but I am expected to know a lot about it. And so when, uh, when all of us are sit, sit here and do our job, we are writing about and are expected to know about more things than your typical specialist coin dealer. This is like sort of our lot in life is that we write about things we can't collect. I cl- I started collecting the FAO series because it was cheap and because it was interesting from sort of a coins as propaganda kind of element. And I was also surprised to find out that there are uh, more than five or six hundred medals associated with this, the coins. So I just like said, well, you know, nobody's ever really I've kind of done a deep a deep dive into this. I'll just kind of do it as I can do it. But you know, once you hold a you know the child's eighteen oh four dollars in your hand or the eighteen twenty two five at the post sale, it becomes very difficult <laughs> to uh, to look at coins the same way again. I went to publications after I stopped really being hardcore into trying to put together you know nineteenth century coin sets and stuff like that because publications by their very nature are cheap. And I had enough experience with coins to not lose that connection when I said, well, I would rather have a copy of uh, Ed Fassard's Numisma than uh, the coins he's writing about.
2: As you've said, we do have to write about things that we can't afford, and that can lead to a certain amount of drooling over really extraordinary <laughs> specimens. Jealousy. <laughs> but like us, you've had the opportunity to chase a ton of different stories from all across numismatics. What specific story and what sort of genre of stories, if you will, have you found most rewarding to write about and you found that you can write about most effectively?
3: I've tried to help some of the of our, of our industry partners with the major companies like uh, see things that I think in the long run would be beneficial to the market. I'm not necessarily an advocacy journalist, but I think all of us have a role in the industry, and when you have a good idea, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to set up a grading service, but if I can help a grading service see potential in something, I, I don't care if I'm not going to directly benefit with uh, getting paid that they do it. I, I'd rather see the industry thrive and succeed than to, to enrich myself for everything I do. Um, I think the most rewarding thing that I've ever been involved with is I sort of talked John Albany's at CAC to put CAC stickers on Ike Dollars, um, and I felt like the reason why it was a good idea is that the hardcore guys at the top of the registry sets are super particular about coins and it takes more than the grade on the holder for them to, to, to put $10,000 into one of them. And I told John, I said, you know, that we need to train the grade services to be very strict on modern coins. You know, sometimes I, I get the feeling that I've seen coins like, you know, presidential dollars and stuff like that. And holders that I felt like didn't deserve the grade. And and part of that's because I think it's a different grading line and the standards are looser because maybe nobody wants to buy a MS-66 presidential dollar, you know, but they'll buy a 67. I thought that that was great for the industry. Things like, you know, I've been pushing for the grading services to adopt AI uh, as one of the components of grading coins, uh, because I feel that the product has become not as sophisticated as the collector. And I know that sort of runs counter to what I was saying about uh you know people not having the information. But we grew up on the internet, right? So we can look up anything. And yeah. if you get a situation where you are ready to put fifty, sixty, eighty thousand dollars in a piece dollar, you can look that up and probably see every every auction that Heritage or Stacks or Great Collections or Goldbergs or anybody have it at coin the last four or five years and if that coin went up in great, which sometimes happens for for the right reasons um then you know everything about it whereas if you had an a i system where the first set of eyeballs was a basically a sophisticated two d three d computer and that created like you know imagine what that computer would see like a uh, like a composite image with all the hits annotated and stuff like that. Uh, and they would be able to tell like how much of the strike was there, uh, if, whether or not there was any chemical contaminants, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you, and if you were able to see that when you looked up a third number, uh, then I think that that would give you more value. And so, so to me, the advocacy for, for changes in the industry is like the thing I'm most proud about. But as far as like covering stories, um, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard for me to say. My, my proudest moment was actually the videos we made when we went to Austria and and filmed the Austrian men in Vienna. I thought that was like probably the best work I've done.
1: So let's go back to this connection between information. It begs the question for me if there's adequate communication between the dealer journalism and collector communities, or is there more that needs to be
3: done? Well, you have several dealers who do a fantastic job. I mean, you know, Doug Winter, John Kralovich... um, uh, the dealers who really write a lot do a fantastic job. You, I think John's Will uh, column, he runs in Coin World is like one of the better dealer columns. Um, David Lang does a good column in the New business. There's certainly a lot of effort that's been put in on the part of dealers. I mean, Dave Bowers, I mean, he still writes little mini articles and stuff. So I think that that's all good. I, I just think that in the long run, we're in a position now where the hobby is in a transition. People are aged. Are going to be carrying a lot of the weight for getting the keeping the flame alive, if you will. And dealers are age are going to be coming onto the scene. They already are. We just have to get these dealers actively involved to see the benefit of what you know the last generation of of good uh, literary dealers brought to the table. As, as we get along, I think there'll be new ideas and new approaches, and, and people will see a hobby differently, and it will be different in 10 or 20 years. I just think that for publications like mine and publications like CoinWorld, uh, I think that the future really depends on our ability to convey the hobby as it is today to a potential customer or a t- potential collector who uh, wants to be interested in something that's meaningful. And uh, our ability to say, yeah, coins are interesting things. They're collected by interesting people, and and we definitely want you, you know, to come along this journey with us.
1: That sounds like the perfect way to sum up where we are in the hobby and and where we want to go. But Chris and I generally, but at world as well. So with that, I will thank you so much for your time today. You've uh, generously given us. Uh, the chance to reach out to a quote unquote competitor, but also in, really a colleague in, in the hobby. We, we both have the end goal. We all love the hobby and want to be around, uh, see it be around, so we can both enjoy it as collectors and participate in it career wise. So uh, thank you again, Charles. It's been great to have you here. We will see you, I guess, at the ANA. <laughs>
3: yeah, absolutely. And Coin World Magazine is really. Is there a better time to subscribe, guys? And also uh, check us out. Awesome. Yeah, so
2: a All right, well, thanks so much, Charles. Take it easy. Take care. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. We certainly hoped that you enjoyed our interview with Charles Morgan, a fellow numismatic publisher and journalist from whom we learned a great deal, and we hope that you found the conversation interesting
0: and entertaining.
1: Until next week, happy collecting.
0: Thank you for listening to the CoinWorld Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was sponsored by California Rare Coins and James Cottle. At California Rare Coins, we specialize in early rare copper coins and other rare coins in the finest grades known. We provide free coin appraisals for all U.S. coin collections inspected for potential purchase. Our expert coin dealers appraise all coin collections for their true liquid value, and our nationwide coin collector network allows us to attain the highest price possible for your material. Contact California Rare Coins and James Cottle today and get a free, no-obligation appraisal and offer on your U.S. coin collections and rarities. Visit CaliforniaRareCoins.com or call James Cottle at 818-481-0569. That's CaliforniaRareCoins.com, 818-481-0569.